Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. This is part four of our series on original sin. Last time, Keegan Chandler and Jerry Weir will discuss their different views of original sin and the resultant human condition, and this is a continuation of that discussion as well as the final part of our series. We're going to once again circle back to Romans 5 and hear how both sides understand it and really ask the question, what drives our desire to sin? Is it our mortality, our toxic environment, or our fallen flesh, or a combination? Listen in as these two scholars discuss this important issue. Here now is episode 324, Original Sin Debate Part 2, with Keegan Chandler and Jerry Weirwell. Well, uh, gentlemen, welcome back. So glad to have Keegan Chandler from Texas and Jerry Weirwell in New York talking with me today about this important subject. Last time we talked about uh, the subject of original sin. We clarified it down to two major components, that humans inherit Adam's guilt, and that in addition to that, humans have a sinful nature that uh, either compels or at least predisposes them to sin. There's a, a few different positions out there. We have the classical Augustinian position, which argues for what's called total depravity, at least nowadays, and that's the idea that we have a compulsion to sin. We, we really can't do what is good. And then uh, Keegan's position, which is uh, the polar opposite of that, which is that uh, we don't have a sinful nature that compels us to sin. We, we can choose to sin or not choose to sin. And then Jerry is occupying a position between the, those two saying that we have a propensity to sin, uh, and that is from the womb, but we are able to resist it, certainly with God's help. So uh, today we're going to get into Romans chapter 5, which has been sort of, uh, we've been eager to get into it, and now we're finally going to be able to do that. So which of you two would like to get us started? Well, I'd like to first clarify, because again, like I mentioned in the last episode, Sean, Jerry and I actually have a lot of overlap in our opinions. I actually do agree that we do have a strong inclination towards evil, that we do have this impulse towards sinfulness. I believe that 100% and can agree with, with that principle. What I don't believe in is that we have an inherited nature which forces us to obey. And uh, I hope that we'll be able to get into some of these other philosophical issues after we uh, consult Romans 5. But that's uh, but Romans five is is a very good place uh, to start this conversation today. And uh, unless Jerry has any other um, comments, then we'll get started on it. Oh, really quick, Keegan, with what you just said, how is that different from from my definition and and explanation? Look, plenty of people have believed that we have an inclination towards sin. However, to have a strong impulse towards sin is not the same as having a nature which forces us to sin by necessity. I've already clarified that I'm, I'm completely not in that camp. What I want to know is you're saying that there is some sort of an inclination within us. That's what I'm arguing for. That is the result of, of the fallenness of the world and of humanity. Well, let's read Romans 5, and then we'll, we'll 
continue this conversation. It reads in, uh, just reading from the ESV here, Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then it goes on for that, from there, and if you guys want to bring in more of that, that context, that's up to you. Uh, Keegan, why don't you go ahead and get us started here? How are you looking at, at this text? Sure. So I actually read um, that verse there. Instead of saying, death spread to all men because all have sinned, I actually read that as death spread to all men with the result that all have sinned, meaning that death is the thing standing behind our sinning. Um, And as uh, Jerry, as you acknowledged, this is one of several possible interpretations of this challenging text. And as you also mentioned, this is not just my interpretation, but has been taken by some New Testament scholars and is the view of the Eastern Orthodox Church. But you suggested um, a few episodes ago that this is not the best reading uh, and said that my reading actually violates the entire paradigm of sin resulting in death in the Bible. And going further, you argued that the idea that death or mortality gives way to sin is not a concept found in scripture and wanted me to demonstrate where I could find that paradigm. Uh, So uh, this may be a bit of an extended response, but there's a lot to to cover here. Uh, And I'll say this first, in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, Paul says, the sting of death is sin. Now, if you come from a Protestant background, Paul's apparent formulation here that sin is a consequence of death, that may sound pretty strange. And perhaps also because there are so many places in the Bible uh, that says that death is a result of sin. And I think for us in the West, we've been unfortunately prejudiced by Augustinian and mainline Protestant readings, which emphasize these verses and wrongly cast it aside, as I believe you're unknowingly doing here, uh, the rest of what the Bible has to say about the basic problem of the human condition. Because I agree with you, Jira, as I mentioned, uh, in that the Bible says that there is something wrong with us. There is something fundamentally broken with us and about our situation in life. And that's what we're really worrying about here in this discussion. What is the foundation of our problem as human beings? Is it mortality or is it sin? What begets what? Uh, What comes first? What's the basic human problem from which other human problems flow? Uh, If it turns out that death, that mortality is our basic problem in the Bible, then it follows that our sinful actions in this life are a result of being in that condition. And that is my position. And I think what is explicitly presented in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 56, which says that the sting of death is sin. Uh, But in the last episode, you seem to claim that the text uh, doesn't really say that. Uh, So I'll first give a quick uh, textual uh, defense of that if I can. As I'm sure you very well know, Paul is drawing here on some version of Hosea 13, 14, and which uh, it says, O death, where is your thorns? O, o shale, where is your sting? And in the Septuagint, uh, it says, O death, where is your sentence? O Hades, where is your goad? And that last word for goad or spur is the Greek kentron, the same word that Paul uses when he says the kentron of death is sin. So here in Hosea 13, 14, and in other places, the kentron of a thing is is an attribute of the preceding subject, where it's an effect or a consequence produced by the subject. The scorpion has a stinger, for example. Uh, The stinger doesn't have a scorpion. That would be pretty strange. 
so in this case, and Hosea, which Paul's drawing on, the sting, whatever that is, is something that's produced by shale or death. That seems very clear. So the, the sting is death result or effect. So we can read Paul that same way in 1 Corinthians, that death, the grave, shale, it has this effect. There's something that comes with death, and, and that is sin. And addressing the second uh, prong of your argument uh, about this verse, I want to talk about the presence of this paradigm that death facilitates sin elsewhere in Scripture, though I do argue that it's plainly stated in this verse I just read. But, uh, you know, when we're surveying difficult topics like this, we have to be careful not to oversimplify things and say, well, in the Bible, it's always death that causes sin, not the other way around. That's not quite right. It can certainly be that both are true. Again, we have to understand that what we're really arguing about is what is the root cause of our problem? What's the primal force behind the human condition? And while it is certainly true as a principle that death results in sin, that's obvious and everywhere in scripture, as you pointed out, Jerry, we, have, we also have passages which appear to locate the epicenter of our human problem in death. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 26, so just several verses earlier, Paul identifies death, that is human death, uh, as the ultimate and final enemy of God's people. And in Revelation, the ultimate and last thing to be thrown in the fire is death. It's the ultimate evil for human beings that God has to deal with. And we furthermore read in the New Testament that Jesus came to deal not with just the sin problem, but the interrelated death problem, which the devil affected in the garden, right? Paul says death spread to all men, and that's what Jesus came to deal with. In 2 Timothy 1.10, it says Jesus came and destroyed death. In 1 John, it says that sin is the work of the devil, and the Son of God came to destroy the work of the devil. And then in Hebrews 2.14, we read that Jesus came to destroy the devil who holds the power of death. And it's specifically in Hebrews 2.15 that we see specifically it is the fear of death that has been the devil's power over humanity. This is what he's evidently exploiting. It's, it's interesting, in Hebrews 2.15, it says, before we were uh, in Christ, we were in slavery through our fear of death. We read all the time in the New Testament, and in Paul in particular, that we are slaves, right? We're slaves to sin. Uh, we're slaves to impurity over and over and over. But what we see here in 2, 15, Hebrews 2.15, it says, we were people who through our fear of death were slaves all our lives. We were in slavery because of our fear of death. Uh, returning also to Romans 5, in 5.21, there is another verse which has had some controversy over translation, and most probably don't read it in the way that I do, but it's possible. Uh, it says that sin reigned in death in the same way that grace reigns through righteousness. And so I read that to mean that death is the means by which sin reigned. Humanity's mortality is what enables the widespread dominion and mastery of sin. It is in death. Uh, that's the realm in which uh, sin is our slave master. So I would push back on this idea that it's not a paradigm found in scripture. All right, well, let's come back to the, the text we started from here, uh, Romans five twelve, which reads, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, this whole controversy really comes in on that those last, in this English version I was reading here, three words, because all sinned. Uh, so it, it, the way this reads, it's, it's saying that 
death spread because we all sinned. Whereas how Keegan is, is reading this is totally different following the Eastern Orthodox view. So Jerry, maybe you could uh, give us some thoughts on this as far as the Greek grammar here. It is an unusual expression. It doesn't just say because all sinned, in other words. Uh, so maybe you could clarify this for us uh, a little bit and give us some thoughts. Yeah, sure. Um, so epho pantes hemartan, you know, um, the epho uh, here, preposition epi with the relative pronoun. Uh, this is the one, this is the section that's in question here. I think it's simply easy enough to say that this idiomatic phrase uh, can be looked at in several different ways. Uh, actually, you know, Keegan's way of looking at it is grammatically valid. It can, ha- it can be looked at that way. My way of looking at it is also grammatically valid. So I don't think this is actually the um, watershed point of the issue here. Uh, it can, this F-ho can, can be something like with the result that all sin. It could also be in whom, if you wanted to look at uh, the relative pronouns antecedent being re- referring back to Adam, in whom Adam all sinned. Uh, it could also be causal uh, because all sinned, or could also be because in Adam all sinned. Either one, contextually, you have to determine which one uh, is a stronger case to be made. Uh, so there's there are different ways this this phrase can be taken. So uh, I don't think this is actually a, a strong point of controversy that we're going to decide the issue over. Okay. Uh, well, I just did want to affirm that this is not Keegan's weirdo exegesis here, because I I have um, just a, sort of an outside witness here, uh, David Bentley Hart, uh, who comes from a very more liberal but orthodox position on a lot of these different things. And in his translation, he says, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. And then he has an extensive uh, footnote, whereas um, N.T. Wright in his translation does something interesting. He says, in that way, death spread to all humans, in that all sinned. And then he uses an ellipsis and then starts a new sentence. Uh, So this is a genuine... This is a genuine grammatical issue that is that is worthy of consideration. But Jerry, what you're saying is that that's not really where you want to focus uh, your time here. Uh, Keegan has has ex- expanded on his view a little bit. Uh, how how do you see this this text and this whole subject of inherited sin from Adam? Well, I think uh, the way I look at Romans five twelve and understanding uh, fo here, I, I look at it because I look at it as being causal. And I look at it as not necessarily having to have a strict uh, interpretation of, is it because of Adam's sin or is it because all sinned? I actually think both are in view, to be honest. Uh, but I do take the phrase F-ho to be causal, whereas I think Keegan is arguing that he takes it to be resultant. Now, I think that what I'm going to want to push us toward is when you go through the rest of the passage, that it, be- it becomes more clear what Paul is doing. And I think that is the context that should inform how we look back at what he's trying to say in verse 12. All right, go ahead. Looking at the way Paul's structure unveils here in his argumentation, uh, he's doing uh, a typical thing in biblical literature is to draw upon the idea of types. You know, uh, Adam is a type and Christ is a type. And one of my major premises for understanding that there is something of which 
Adam did that then affects us, which, you know, to be honest, Keegan, you're saying that there is something wrong with everybody because of Adam as well. I think our disagreement then is what exactly is wrong with us. So just to try to clarify the issues, I think that's actually the point of which we are dividing over because it sounds like there is some sort of inherited problem in your view. You say that there's inherited death, calling it mortality. So humanity has been affected by Adam and his transgression period on both of our interpretations. Uh, there's no, am I wrong? Are you also on board with that? No, that's right. Correct. Yes. Okay. So we're disagreeing exactly. What did, what did Adam's, uh, transgression, how does that then propagate to the rest of humanity and, and what that means? So I looking, looking here in Romans chapter five, going on here, uh, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So Paul's saying that, you know, death continued to reign. Death continued to be experienced by every person from the first man all the way till Moses when the law was given, uh, even if they didn't sin like Adam did. So de death is the common thread here. And the, explicitly here, Paul says Adam is a type of the coming one. So that's why we know Adam, um, Paul is using typology language here and looking at Adam and, uh, and Christ as types because he just flat out says it. Now, verse 15, the free gift, which is a reference to the righteousness in Christ, is not like the transgression committed by Adam. For if many died through the transgression of one man, much more surely did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. So now we're getting Christ and Adam being compared here. And the idea that Paul is presenting is that people died through the transgression of one man. So we know that Paul is linking Adam's sin to the death of the rest of humanity. I think Keegan's on, on par with that as well in his interpretation. Now, when we move down to verse 16, the free gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment came from one, and this could be one person or one transgression, resulting in condemnation. And on the other hand, the free gift came after many transgressions, resulting in a verdict of righteous. I'm reading um, one of the translations that I work on, the Revised English Version here. The idea here is what does it mean that from one person or transgression that condemnation came? And then what's the, what does it mean that the free gift came? So the, the way Paul is trying to set up these categories is that you have these two archetypes. One archetype is Adam and the other archetype is Christ. And what he's saying is that something has happened that stems from them. Condemnation comes from one archetype. Righteousness comes from another archetype. And in verse 17, if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance and gift, uh, of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So now we see here that it was the sin of Adam that did cause death to reign. We still haven't established exactly what he's saying about that. But we know that death is a result of Adam's transgression, just like life is a result of Jesus Christ and his righteousness and the grace that he gives. Now here, verse 18. So then, 
just as one transgression resulted in condemnation for all people, not death for all people, condemnation. This is a word referring to being under God's judgment. Another way to say it is being a recipient of God's wrath. And I think this is the idea of children of wrath coming. This is where I get my understanding of being a child destined, you know, being a person destined for God's wrath is because Adam's transgression resulted in condemnation for all people. And then for the rest of verse 18, so also one act of righteousness results in righteousness that brings life for all people. For just as through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So now here we have the connection between Adam's disobedience and the resulting effect that people became sinners. There's a logical connection there that Adam's sin then had an effect which caused other people to sin. And then the opposite effect through Jesus Christ, that through the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, many will be made righteous, which is the opposite of condemnation, the opposite of being a sinner. Righteousness and holiness are the two different uh, themes that go with Christ. Sin, disobedience, condemnation are the themes that go with Adam as archetypes. So I think I'm going to pause right here um, and allow uh, Keegan to respond. Keegan? Yeah, thank you, Jerry. Uh, That was a very clear explanation. And yet I think uh, further clarity can be had still. I agree with you 100% that Adam's sin resulted in everybody else sinning. Absolutely agree with that. Adam is the fountainhead for all subsequent human problems. And I would, before I get started, I would first point out that I think this whole issue um, can be addressed by addressing one of the challenges you made a couple episodes ago, Jerry, in which you pointed out that everybody dies. Uh, or um, uh, you, you you had said that all children die, and if they don't have some effect of primal sin, which has caused them to be mortal, then then you know why is that happening to them? And we could we could say the same thing about about sin. Why is everybody sinning? Why is everybody dying if it wasn't the result of something that Adam did? Well, I absolutely agree that it is the result of something that Adam did. But the first problem with how you're you're framing this is that you've connected all individual death of human beings to individual sin. And uh, you've connected all episodes of individual sin directly to Adam's sin. But there's a middle, a middle ground there that I've argued for. If Adam has affected, has uh, caused people to live in this exoedenic state in which mortality uh, reigns and in which sin reigns in mortality, uh, then that's what affects people's sin. While it, it's clear from in the Bible that human beings die and sin as a result of Adam's sin, but we have to take more care in how we define exactly what the effect of Adam's sin was. In Genesis, we see that the direct punishment Adam suffered was that he was kicked out of the garden so that he died. His access to the tree of life was cut off. And that produced an effect for all subsequent people, namely that they were outside the garden and they were forced to live in this terrible world. So according to Genesis, humans die uh, because they're no longer able to reach out from the tree and live forever. And on my, my reading 
people sin because of that fact also. Uh, so you are very right to say that humans die and sin as a result of the primal sin, absolutely. But Adam's sin doesn't have to have had a metaphysical effect on our nature. It doesn't have to be a just punishment for individual wrongdoing either. Uh, yes, humans now die as an unfortunate effect of God's direct punishment on Adam. We've all suffered indirectly the generational effects of, of that situation. Uh, and we can uh, and should affirm that fact apart from any kind of Augustinian assumptions about changes in human nature. And ultimately, I see the Bible says nothing about a change in human nature or, or a bondage of the will or anything like that, or us being forced into sin as a punishment for Adam's sin. No, what happened was he was kicked out of the garden, and therefore the rest of us happened to be born outside of the garden in this terrible world that is full of sin, and that entire situation uh, results in our own sin. Let me uh, ask a question here, Keegan. You, you said that there is something broken in all of us and that death facilitates us to sin. You said that earlier in this episode or the previous right. one. Um, your explanation didn't just account for that. Yeah, like, yeah so yeah. maybe I should clarify what I, mean, what I meant by that. I believe that we are all born with natural impulses towards self-preservation and towards the pursuit of happiness. And, you, and you're not calling that sin, though? No, not at all. What, what is that? Where does that come from? Those, that comes from God. Okay, God all, created us to be that way. Yes, these are natural impulses that God created us with, just like the rest of the animals have these instincts towards self-preservation. Is this, or is this like hunger, hunger or um, procreation and things like that? Well, the, so the, the, uh, in Judaism, they describe this as the Yetzer Hara, if you're familiar with that. I am. Which is this inclination towards selfishness. A lot of Jewish sources will call it an inclination towards evil, but I think that's the little, uh, I don't think that language frames it right. It's an inclination towards self-preservation. And when uh, left unchecked, when we don't keep that God-given and natural impulse in check, that's when we get into trouble. But, you know, Jewish sources famously say if it were not for the Yetzirah, then a man would never take a wife. A man would never build a house for himself. So these are simply natural things that God has given us in order to survive this very troublesome life on earth. But when we let those inclinations and impulses run wild and we don't check them, we don't keep them where God wants us to keep them, then that results in sin. So what I believe is that we're born with these impulses, but they in, in and of themselves are not sin. But once we take up the habit of sin, those impulses um, become exacerbated and they become what Paul describes as a law of sin within my members, this strong disposition towards sin. But this is not an inherited metaphysical bondage from Adam. Uh, it, it, this is not sin in and of itself. And it's something that can be overcome through Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, it's important to keep in mind that having a strong impulse towards sin, even one uh, attached to the fall, is not the same as having a nature which forces us to sin. So I, I hope that clarified my view a little bit. Yeah, I still have a, one more question. Is when Adam sinned, well, first of all, I guess, is there such thing as metaphysical, and a metaphysical entity called sin in, in the biblical theology that you understand? A metaphorical one, certainly, but not a metaphysical reality. There is no sin virus that we've contracted. Sin is disobedience. 
So you think even after we sin, nothing in us changes. There is, there is no, like, so Adam didn't, didn't gain something metaphysical called sin, even when he disobeyed God. There's nothing metaphysical happening there in Genesis. Um, that's not one of his punishments. That's not blamed for anybody when they talk about sin. Um, that he didn't lose his, uh, nobody lost their ability to obey. When God speaks to Cain in the next chapter, he says, you must master sin. So there's nothing uh, there that changed. But does something happen to us when we sin? Well, certainly it does, even at, uh, at a physiological level, right? It's kind of like, uh, like drug addiction. When we sin, our bodies, our flesh becomes uh, enticed by that. It becomes hungry for that. It has this sinful expectation, and um, that's the power of habit in our lives. And so these impulses, which God originally gave us, which were, were which can be good and can be very helpful, we've let them run wild. That's brought us into a lifestyle of sin, and we've gotten into this terrible cycle, uh, which needs to be broken. So, so you're, you're labeling sin as a strictly neuropsychological conditioning of the human mind, nothing metaphysical. There is not a real entity inside of your body called sin. No, 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 no. When you actually sin, you're saying all it does is train your mind to want it more. There's nothing in, in like when Paul talks about there being passions in his flesh and things that are driving him to desire sinning, you're saying that that's, that, that's actually not true. There is nothing in your flesh metaphysically that is urging you aside from your preconditioned way of thinking. I'm not sure if you're slicing it exactly as I would. There is certainly a reality in our lives called sin, but what is that? Is it something you can view under a microscope? Is it uh, something that you can point inside of your cells and say, ah, there, there it is, there's sin? Uh, sin is disobedience. Sin is a, is a conscious moral disobedience of God's laws. And so when people do that, uh, it does and, and can have an effect on, on people's minds and on the way that they think and also in their bodies. That's why he describes this law of sin that is in the members of his body. I think he sees that, I mean, when he's speaking of flesh, that's obviously a very uh, physiological uh, dimension of this whole issue that he's bringing out for people. Well, let, let me interrupt here and see if I can offer a clarification. On the one hand, you have sin, and sin as far as Keegan is defining it, and I think probably a lot of people would define it this way just generally, is the description of an action. It's uh, it's a word that describes, you know, an adjective, if you will, of an action, a sinful action, right? If an action is against what God says is right, we can classify that action as sin or that behavior as sin. Whereas flesh, and we haven't really talked about this much, but we seem to be like just touching on it right now, this concept of flesh, maybe with a capital F, if you will, in Paul's writing, which we don't really see much outside of Paul. Before that, flesh just seems to mean meat or, you know, just physical human bodies and so, and so on. But uh, once we get into Romans in particular, in the Pauline corpus, we have flesh as if it is a metaphysical reality that is in our bodies that is sort of like pushing us towards sin. And what I hear you saying, Keegan, is that this is no more or less than the Yetzer Haram uh, idea of Judaism, that there is this sort of almost God-given, God-approved aggressiveness in us or 
self-preservation in us, and it need not be spoken of in purely negative ways. Am, am I getting close to what you're saying here, or am I just totally missing it? Well, at its core, it shouldn't be spoken of in, in negative ways. But when it paces outside of where God thinks we should keep these impulses, absolutely it should be spoken of in negative ways. There is a, a difference between having a natural instinct towards uh, selfishness or self-preservation, for example, and what happens in our, uh, uh, in our life and even in our own bodies when we let that instinct run wild and lead us into what is uh, sinful behavior. That has a wide-ranging effect on our life and ultimately puts us in a, a very bad state where it becomes extremely, extremely difficult to obey God. So I think that there is something absolutely broken uh, with us. Uh, we have a strong inclination to sin. Um, it is extremely difficult to even see past that at all. But that is not an inherit a metaphysical inheritance from Adam. It is something that we have brought upon ourselves by sinning and being a part of a sinful world that Adam has unfortunately left us. And the distinction there uh, is important. Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry, why don't you give us a little uh, bit of a, a survey or explanation of what you understand to me to Paul mean by the flesh and how that plays into all of this? Uh, sure. So the idea of the flesh can have a just a physical component to it, meaning part of your actual body, your your hands, your fingers, your toes, uh, legs, arms, head, things like that. You know, it can it can just be you as a, a human being. But the way that Paul uses it theologically uh, is completely metaphorical. And he uses it as a metaphor to relate to what I'm calling uh, the sin nature, which is this uh, brokenness that uh, every human contains within them as a result of Adam's transgression. And I think this is probably most pronounced uh, in uh, Romans uh, 7 um, in his argument there. Paul talks about what he what is going on inside of him. And there's a scholars have debated on exactly what he's trying to present. But the point that I think is clear and, and incontrovertible is that he's saying that in himself, and he says, in my flesh, there is no good thing. And he's talking about that there is sin uh, in the, in the pre, like pre, just previously before that, he said there's sin living in him. And he's, so you could say he's personifying sin here, but I don't think he's making it up as just a, some sort of a figurative hypothetical reference, I think he's speaking out of reality here, that he's talking about um, when he sees himself not doing what the law says. He says, well, it's because there's actually something in me that is actually contrary to doing what God wants me to do. And that he's, uh, he's fighting with that. And therefore, if he, if he knows what he's supposed to do, but then he doesn't do it, he says, well, that's because I have sin. Sin is in me. Not, I'm not committing sin. Committing sin is to actually to fail to do what God wants. But he's saying, I, I have this uh, inside of me, this desire to rebel against God, against God's law. And therefore, he says that he, he understands that there is this law in him that even if he wants to do good, he says, evil is present with me. He says, like he's referring to his own body and something within him gives him these evil desires that he has to fight against and reject. 
And so sure. that's why he says he delights in the law of God in his inner being, but then he has a war in his body with the, in his mind. The law of, of his body is waging war against the law of his mind, and therefore he's being taken captive to this sin that is in him. And he looks at himself as being this wretched person looking for how can he be delivered from this body of death, which is produced by sin. I think we, we all establish uh, that sin causes death. And he says that actually it's Jesus Christ who, who has uh, given me this victory so that he can serve the law of God. But in the law, in his flesh, uh, there's still this law of sin. For Jerry, I'm a little bit confused. You seem to say two things. Is Paul speaking metaphorically here or not? He's using the word flesh, which is a physical substance, biological cells that accumulate into tissue. He's using that metaphorically, yes. Right. So I would say that he absolutely is speaking metaphorically here. But you seem to also then say he was speaking about actual physical realities. But I, I think what's happening here is... Wait, wait, what, what, what physical realities? That's, that's what you... I think you uh, used that phrase. I said he's like speaking that. about reality that there really is something called sin in his flesh. Sure. Um, that, that, that's a reality to him. Yes, it's, it's cast metaphorically, though. So I would agree that he does metaphorically think, say that there is something called sin in him. Absolutely. We're saying two different things. I'm saying he's using the word flesh metaphorically to refer to these evil inclinations that exist within him. He's not saying that those inclinations are metaphorical. Well, I agree. I think I've said many times that I do believe that there are real inclinations inside of us. Yeah, but you're saying that these are neutral inclinations that are God-given. I'm saying that these are at evil. First, no, Jerry, at first. And Paul is speaking about the pre-conversion plight. Our inclinations are God-given and natural at first. But when we take up sinning, when uh, they are twisted and become exacerbated, as I said, and that process creates a law of sin in our members that draws us expeditiously towards sin. Seems like you guys are actually a lot closer together than than uh, I realized. Yeah, um, that's what I've been saying. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe if I could just clarify a difference or, or ask a question to clarify a difference here. I think what Jerry is saying is that the result of the fall was a corruption of the human condition such that we have a thirst for sin or, uh, you know, maybe not irresistible, but a strong desire to rebel against God. And what you're saying is that this is not the consequence of the fall. This is just how we are from the beginning. Is that a fair? Not exactly, because, because universal sinfulness is a consequence of the fall. But we, but we have, but the nuance is important. What did Adam's sin actually affect? Did it affect a change of our nature that forces us to sin? Or did it affect a sinful world and mortality for all, which then produced an effect of universal sinfulness? The, the distinction is important because it has a lot of bearing on these ethical questions about what we think of God and God's justice and our uh, obligations to do what God says. Jerry? Why does death produce sin? Well, I think I uh, described that. I know I said a lot, and my uh, 
and my explanation of First uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty six and the rest of the verses. Well, no, I mean just just like explain what how what does it mean that death produces sin? What does that mean? Well, what that means is that our natural uh, impulses towards self-preservation and towards happiness are heightened and exacerbated, right? We now uh, have death ever before us. We have to, we feel the draw uh, now outside of Eden more than ever, we could say, of getting as much happiness and as much life as we possibly can during the rest of our miserable existence. And the, the draw of self-preservation in light of death produces an environment in which sin is uh, a guarantee. So there's a big difference, though, between what I'm saying and saying that Adam gave us a nature which forces us to sin. Adam gave us um, a condition of life which exacerbates our natural impulses and makes it extremely, extremely difficult to avoid sin. So I, I hope that's clarifying. I think that we're actually saying very similar things, but the nuance is slight. What I'm, I think what I understand the difference being is, apart from what I described as the effect of Adam's transgression, having a metaphysical detriment to the human condition, uh, you're also saying that uh, that there is some sort of a detriment to Adam's transgression, but rather than this culpability brought about the the universal condemnation of of the human race or, the, or of humanity, you're saying that we personally have this warped, or our desires get warped to then force us to sin. So you're, you're basically saying what Augustine's saying in a different way, just later on in life. No, I don't think that it forces us to sin. Because if we are forced to sin, that causes all kinds of problems with God's justice and with his ability to judge sinners. Um, well, I'm, I'm using that language because that's the language you use uh, toward me on my side. I, so I thought, I thought we were saying the same thing. Adam has placed us in a situation in which it is virtually impossible to avoid sinning. You're talking about the system, Keegan. This, the, the world system is such a place that it's, it's nearly impossible to not sin. Our situation in life makes it so that it is virtually impossible to not sin. Yeah, so I think we're, we're agreed on that. Except we're, there is the difference that you said many times in the other episode that sinning is inevitable for people. And I don't think that sinning is inevitable. I think it's, it's extremely unlikely that people will go, uh, that people will not sin so, so much so that it is virtually impossible. Um, because if it is literally impossible to avoid sin, if people truly do not have the ability to not sin, then you have a theodicy issue. We have, a, we have many issues, some of which, uh, including the fact that God can't judge sinners because he can't hold them accountable right. for what they could not help but do. I got you. That, that makes perfect sense. Really quick to make sure that my statement's not misrepresented, the impossibility to not sin 
doesn't mean that we can't refrain. Uh, I believe the context was that was that people will inevitably commit sin in their life because of the sin that dwells in their flesh. Right. So, uh, we, we can resist sin. Uh, and that's the entire point of Paul of that. When you receive the spirit of God, you now receive a capability and a way to live that can be different than your former way of life where you, where you just were living in sin. Now you can actually live according to the law of God. Now, the whole point of sanctification and uh, the pursuit of holiness is to be able to have your life transformed closer and closer into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, well so that's we, a gradual process. Yeah, well, we might be getting somewhere uh, with this because, again, like I've been saying, I think we're a lot closer than we probably realize. But I still take issue with a couple of things that were said previously because you not only said things like sin is inevitable but also said that we would never stop sinning until Jesus comes back and gives us a new body. Did I understand that right? Yeah, I would deny any form of absolute perfectionism. Okay, so so you see that you are saying that sin is inevitable in, this, in the sense that we have this nature, which will, at least, if not all the time, at least sometimes force us to sin. No, I, I, would, I think we should stop using the word force, because I think you think I said it wrongly about you, and I think you're incorrectly... Uh, describing about what I'm saying. Okay, but what? But if you're saying, and and I, I want to be as as charitable as possible, and we both do. What I what I hear you saying is that we have this force in us that will inevitably draw us into sin, and while at sometimes it it is able to be resisted, it won't be resisted because you said that it's impossible for. Uh, us, someone to live a sinless life before Jesus comes back. So am I understanding you correctly? Uh, I think when you say, well, if we say death forces you to sin, and I say sin forces you to sin, are we saying that there is something that, not outside of our voluntary free will, but that there's something broken that then tends to result in us I'm, committing a sin? I'm not saying, and I don't think I've said, if I haven't, I haven't meant to, that death forces us to sin. I think mortality puts us in such a situation that it's virtually, but not literally, impossible to avoid sin. And that, that nuance is very important. because well, there's, there's nobody who's lived who hasn't sinned, so it is, it is an absolute statement. Well, I, I, would, I would disagree with that. The only person who hasn't sinned in their life is Jesus. I think there's, well, we need to have more nuance to that uh, statement. I believe there are probably billions of, of human beings who have died having having no sin. That is, all of the babies who have died have died without sin, as Rome, as uh, Paul says in Romans. They don't have sin on their account. Jesus is obviously the only adult capable of having sin put to his ledger who avoided having sin put to his ledger. And what he did was so difficult. It was so incredibly uh, difficult that it was ultimately worthy of inheriting the cosmos as a reward. Um, and that's why we honor him wow. uh, is because yeah. of the great service he did. Well, guys, we are running out of time here ever so quickly. So I was wondering if you could just both summarize where it is you stand and what you see to be the main differences. Maybe, Keegan, you could go first because you already kind of mentioned this. But just summarizing both conversations and you know your overall position on the fall 
and then our own nature, as well as just pushing it forward a little bit, how you see conversion. Because I, I believe you laid out in your original presentation a case for Christian perfectionism, and we haven't really touched upon that. So uh, if you could just summarize that, and then Jerry can um, summarize his view, and then uh, that'll be it. Sure. So I'd like to first say my concerns are have been keyed towards this idea that um, we inherit uh, Adam's guilt and that therefore uh, we can be held guilty for what Adam did. Um, I think that is uh, fundamentally um, uh, unbiblical, especially in light of passages like in Ezekiel 18, where God says he will not punish the sons for the sins of their fathers. He's actually even very mad uh, that, that people are su- suggesting that he operates in that way. And in light of the fact that Paul teaches that uh, children, uh, we presume, uh, uh, don't have sin that is put to their account. And I think all of that can uh, inform us uh, rather thoroughly as to what the status of children is in the Bible relative to their to their guilt and whether or not they have sin, which tells us whether or not they inherited a, a guilt from Adam. Um, and in addition to that, I react very strongly against this idea that we have a sin nature in us that, I'll use the word, forces us uh, to disobey. I think the idea that we have this force in us that compels us uh, to sin, I don't think that's actually compatible uh, with free will. And I think that causes uh, a lot of issues, um, first of all, for God's justice um, and whether or not we can actually be held uh, accountable uh, for our sin. Rather, I see that it is incumbent upon us uh, to stop sinning. In 1 Corinthians, Paul instructs the church to wake up to a sober life and to stop sinning. He says in Romans 6 that we should not let sin reign in our mortal bodies so that we obey its lust. Do not uh, go on sinning. Should we continue in sin? No, we must die to sin. And over and over and over, the Bible tells us to stop sinning. And that just presupposes that that such a lifestyle is possible, uh, especially if we are going to be judged on the basis of, of, of how we've operated within uh, that world. And I'll, and I'll say this too, at the end of the day, uh, in terms of uh, perfectionism, what the doctrine of original sin says is that we, because of our sin nature, it's too hard to live uh, without sin. It's too hard to stop sinning. As Jerry said, we're not going to stop sinning until uh, Jesus comes back and makes us stop. But I read in Deuteronomy 30, 11, after God gives people his moral rules, he says, do not say that it is too hard for you. So I think we not only have the Bible telling us that we should stop sinning, but we also have the Bible telling us to not say it's too hard for you and that it's incumbent upon us if we would be Christians to actually take seriously these injunctions to stop sinning. And I think all of this is made much more difficult um, by the suggestion that we have this inherited nature which uh, compels us to sin, even against our own will, if we take a certain reading of Romans 7, uh, and also that we have inherited Adam's sin or guilt in such a way that we would be condemned on the basis of what someone else did. So I think there are more scriptural, more uh, more ethical uh, answers to a couple of these challenging texts in Paul uh, than what original sin has to offer us. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jerry, can you summarize where you see things? My understanding of the scriptures and the way that Paul presents the problem of the world is one that stems from 
Adam and what he did in his sin in the garden. And that the reason why he does the typology is he shows his archetypes that uh, what Adam did had consequences for everybody and what Jesus Christ has done also has consequences. One brings death because of sin. The one brings life because of righteousness. And I think that when Paul says that just as one transgression resulted in condemnation for everybody, he's talking about the whole world. He's talking about everybody who was born from Adam on to the present day. Condemnation exists for everybody because of Adam's transgression. And then for everybody who's connected to him um, because of biological descent. Now, in the other hand, the spiritual aspect of whoever's connected to Christ, uh, there's righteousness that is uh, available, a gift of righteousness on account of his righteousness and life because of that. I think this is borne out most clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and 22 says, For since death came through a man, resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There's this connection to these archetypes that I, I think is the most important thing. And I see the way that scripture unveils the problem of our world is one that stems from the original disobedience and that sin, something, uh, a metaphysical aspect of the anthropological dimension of humanity is what is the problem. And that we have a war going on inside of each of us where the parts of, of our body are uh, corrupted by this sin nature that lives within us. And we have to fight against it. And our only hope of overcoming it is by the power of the Spirit of God. And the only way to overcome the consequence of sin, which is death, is to receive uh, the righteousness that Christ can offer. That's why every single person in the world is in need of salvation is because we all stand before God condemned and not in a right relationship with him. And we need to be set in a right relationship with God. All right. Very good. That's going to have to be it for today, guys. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sean. I really enjoyed uh, being with both of you guys and Jerry. I appreciated your, uh, your insights also, and you've given me a lot to think about and I hope you feel the same way and maybe uh, we can come back sometime and discuss this topic again. Yeah, I think there's definitely more to talk about. So thanks, Keegan. Well, that's it for this series. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the matter. Quite a few folks have been writing in on these episodes as we go, but uh, a lot of people haven't. So if you uh, if you're if you've been holding your perspective until we got to the end here, now's your time to come on to restitudio.org and leave a comment on episode 324, Original Sin Debate Part Two with Keegan Chandler and Jerry Weirwell, and I would love to hear what your thoughts are. We had two people write in last time on the whole question of abortion, which I didn't expect, but uh, hey, anything's fair game, right? Carlos writes, by definition, Jerry's view and those like it would make abortion a moral position. Um, Not really sure what Carlos is getting at there. I'm guessing, my guess is that Because Jerry believes that we are born with the stain of Adam's sin upon us, that that would somehow justify murder. I I don't know. Uh, On the opposite side, Rob writes in and says, If all babies or children under the age of accountability are automatically saved, why wouldn't believing mothers kill them? Uh, So that's presumably taking a shot at Keegan's position, saying that 
look, if all babies are saved, just kill the baby, and that guarantees their salvation. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, either either which way you slice it, I don't think killing babies is ever a good idea, uh, or really killing anybody for that matter. Matthew Elton writes in and responds to this sentiment saying that it's wrong because murder is sin, and they would be taking away a human life. Consequently, all the work that person could have done for the Lord if that person had lived uh, and then he goes on to refute the idea of murdering innocent people. So thanks thanks for that, Matthew. I'm glad we're against that here at Restitutio. Kevin George writes in, a very needed debate. Thank you. Here's a very simple thing to consider. Adam was not created with any kind of a sin nature. Regardless of how you want to define that term, Adam sinned. Therefore, a sin nature is irrelevant as to whether or not a person is able to sin. If Adam could sin without having a sin nature, children are also able at some point to sin without having inherited a sin nature. I believe that there are contributing factors that encourage sin, such as our fleshly desires, this is what got Adam, the sinful world around us that encourages sin, and even our own mortality, a short lifespan. However, a sin nature is none of those, and as such should be considered as a last resort, if at all, as a source of sin. However, most current theological systems presume the sin nature to be the very first thing, as if we are compelled by it and under its full control. Part of our design, as is eating, sleeping, and other necessities of life, I believe that is plain wrong as well as unbiblical. Um, Brian Allen also brings in the Jewish perspective. Of course, within Judaism, there is not a concept of original sin because they don't believe in the New Testament, and of course not in uh, Paul's epistles. But uh, Brian does mention that rabbinic Judaism has established that children who aren't bat or bar mitzvah age and those who fall under cheresh, which refers to someone who cannot hear, speak, or with other mental disabilities, are exempt from the obligations of the Torah. Likewise, many children in Judaism cut their teeth on Leviticus, this practice comes from the Midrash, Leviticus Rabbah 7.3, which states, quote, Children are pure, therefore let them study laws of purity, end quote. And then he concludes, of course, within Christianity, you're not going to give any credence to what Judaism has to say on the matter, but I find it aligns nicely with Keegan's position. And I'm sure that Brian Allen will enjoy the episode that we just played out here, because Keegan does base his way of thinking about our sort of like inner aggressiveness or drive to do things that are considered morally inappropriate. Uh, he, he does derive that from a Jewish understanding as well. So uh, some really interesting thoughts here. I wonder what your thoughts are. Please, uh, please come on to Rest Studio and leave a comment if you're interested in this subject. And maybe I'll be putting out a poll in our Facebook group to see how many people fall on either side of this particular issue. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.